Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Uh, Feeling very thankful for our listeners, being patient as we took an impromptu week off, and we also have two new patrons to thank. That's wonderful. Who are they? Thank you to Kevin Walker... Thanks, Kevin. And Jesse Walker-McGraw. I assume no relation. For sure. Thanks, Jesse. <laughs> you can become a patron just like Kevin and Jesse by heading over to patreon.com slash Podcast. There you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month to help support the show. Patrons at the 5 and $10 level get access to special bonus content that's coming out all the time. Mm-hmm. We have two weeks until we hit the 150th week that we've been on Patreon, and we are hoping to hit our first goal of $150 a month by that 150th week. So we got two weeks to go, Mm -hmm. and just under $25 before we hit that goal. That's not that much. No, it's the closest we've come before. I mean, sure. (laughs) The numbers only ever go up at uh, Scream Scenes Patreon. So help us get there by going to patreon.com slash Podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, I know that um, our last episode came out on a very eventful day. To put it mildly. Yeah, in the United States. Um... And I hope that for some people it served as, like, a means of escape that day. Um, Of course, we would have recorded it somewhat earlier. And so, you know, we had our own week going on that week. And things, especially for me, got way, way busier than I thought they were going to be initially. So we really appreciate your patience in waiting for this episode to come out. This episode is going to be pretty big, I understand. Yeah. um, What are we watching? After a couple weeks of, you know... Not good. Slogging through some... Not horror. Z-grade American Releasing Corporation movies, um, we've got a real movie today. uh, A movie that is very well known, that has spawned multiple, multiple remakes, and indeed like, introduced a whole concept into pop culture that was used, like, as a metaphor by people in regular conversation for years after this movie's release. We are watching the original version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956. Oh, so it's a new year. Yes. Happy New Year. Thanks. Some people might be most familiar with this story from its 1970s remake, Um, there's also a 1990s remake, a 2000s remake. Um, some people might be most familiar with this story from a gif of Donald Sutherland from the 1970s remake and not much else. Um, (laughs) that's my familiarity. Right. To be completely transparent. But this movie is not even the original form of this story because it was a novel first. Isn't that right? It was. Uh, the... 
first iteration of this story was uh, the novel from 1954, just called The Body Snatchers, No Invasion Yet, um, by author Jack Finney. So let me tell you a little bit about Finney. Okay. I don't think I've ever really heard of him before. Really? Yeah. Even though I, I presumed that you were pretty familiar with Invasion of the Body Snatchers I mean, and, and stuff. And... In the fiction of the episode as it's happening, I am not that familiar with Jack Finney. We'll put it that <laughs> way, okay? What I mean to say is that he's no, like, Ray Bradbury or Isaac Asimov or Arthur C. Clarke, where it's like, ah, yes, the famous Jack Finney. Like, okay. Harlan Ellison levels of, you know, Theodore Sturgeon. Yeah. So, Jack Finney was born in 1911 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. When he was born, he was named John Finney. But when his father died, when Finney was only three years old, he was renamed after his father, Walter Braden Finney. Okay. Now, you might be wondering, like, well, where does Jack come from in all this? Yeah, he's moving away from Jack if he's Walter now. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, he's three years old. Um, Jack is a nickname for people named John. Right. Um, and the fun etymology of that is because, you know, you have, like, John Doe. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, just like the random person, mm-hmm. a random man on the street. Mm-hmm. Um Jack is also used as a colloquial way of referring to just any guy on the street. That's why you have, like, lumberjack. Exactly, yeah. Jack just meant, like, dude. dude. Um, <laughs> so he, he just kept being called Jack. It's a nice way to memorialize his father being officially named Walter right. Graydon. But, you know, they're just going to keep calling him Jack. Hey, anything's better than Jack-Jack. Which is the name of the Incredibles baby, and always bothered me, because that's so stupid and infantilizing. I assumed his name was Jack, and they just called him Jack Jack. Right, right. I'm just saying that, like, Jack is fine. Dude, dude. Right. He graduated Knox College in 1934, and then married Marguerite Guest. They moved east to New York, so Finney could work in advertising. Okay. Hmm, that's interesting. As a copywriter, Finney found good work. With the Second World War raging in Europe, he would write and then publish the article Someone Who Knows Told Me in a 1943 issue of Cosmopolitan uh, with the general theme of loose lips sink ships. Sure. So that's his first like freelance publication, mm. besides just being a copywriter, um, but it's a nonfiction article. Right. His more creative juices began flowing, and throughout the 40s, he would publish short stories in the Saturday Evening Post, Colliers, and many others, mainly alternating between science fiction and thrillers. Interesting. As his freelance writing picked up steam, Finney and his family, now with two kids, picked up and moved to California in the early 50s. Hoping to make it big. Right. This is where he began to write novels in addition to continuing his short stories. Got it. Jack Finney's first novel was in 1954 and was titled Five Against the House. Okay. Where five college students plan to rob a casino in Reno. Isn't that the plot of that movie with Kevin Spacey from a couple (laughs) years ago? It's a very common thing. Okay. Like, common premise. I guess. It's just the college student part that was like... Yeah. Okay. 
So it was adapted to film the following year, starring Kim Novak and Guy Madison. Oh. His next novel would come in 1955, The Body Snatchers. Okay. Now, it was first serialized throughout 1954 in Collier's magazine, um, and then collected the following year. Got it. Okay. While criticized for its scientific inaccuracies (laughs) and lacking originality... Okay. The novel made a big enough splash to be adapted to film and released the following year, 1956, the movie we are watching today. Right. You know you're a big deal writer when your science fiction stories get published in Collier's and not, you know, a regular sci-fi pulp magazine like (laughs) the rest of us down here in the trenches. Finney would continue to bounce between writing thrillers and science fiction with his short stories and novels throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s. 1970 saw the publication of his best-received piece of work, Time and Again, an illustrated novel featuring an advertising artist who travels back to 1882's New York City, and he blends science fiction, historical fiction, political commentary, and it's it's not like a graphic novel, but because it features an advertising artist, there's, like, drawings sure. from the main character of, like, what 1882's New York looks like. Sure. Finney's output slowed throughout the 80s, um, where he would publish some short story collections, but not really any new original work, um, until the sequel to Time and Again came out in 1995, called From Time to Time. Oh, not time and again and again? (laughs) No. And this was published before his death later that year. Hmm. It's interesting how you say that, like, his output was thrillers and sci-fi, because, like, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a sci-fi thriller, basically. He wrote what interested him. Sure. (laughs) Like I said before, The Body Snatchers was criticized for a lack of originality. Um, However, as been mentioned earlier, it was adapted to film four times. Yes. As far as the plot of the novel goes, it's centered around Mill Valley, California, and it is invaded by seeds from space. Mm-hmm. These seeds grow into pods, which create perfect duplicates of locals, eventually replacing these people while they sleep. Um, These duplicates are near perfect. They have the same memories, knowledge, uh, even scars as the original people. Um, Except these duplicates cannot show any emotions. Once someone is replaced, that person is never seen again. Mm. Now, these duplicates only live for five years. And the fear is that in that time, they'll use up all of Earth's resources, turning it into a dead planet and then spring seeds into space to devour the next planet. Okay. In defense of what they are doing, one duplicate argues that humans do the same as us through colonization, environmental disaster, and overall just destroying ecosystems to survive. I appreciate the attempt at political commentary. I will say that as shitty as humans are, we haven't managed to use up the entire planet in a five-year stretch. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Now, after the duplicates face such resistance in the main characters in this small town, (laughs) they voluntarily leave, deciding basically, we're not going to deal with your shit. 
Um, so they leave Earth, and any duplicates remaining are hunted down and killed. I see. The old humans are too much trouble ending to your sci-fi story. Yep. So while reviewers and readers alike interpreted this 1955 novel as a Cold War allegory about the fear of communism's global takeover, Mm -hmm. um, the fear of uh, spies Mm -hmm. that look just like you, Mm -hmm. uh, Finney would explain, it's just popular entertainment, guys. Yeah. (laughs) He wasn't trying to write that. Right. Um... What's great about art and literature is it doesn't always matter what the author intended. If this is what people are picking up out of this text, then that's still valid. And, you know, art exists in the time and culture it was created in. It's not a vacuum. Right. So regardless of, you know, whether someone intends to make a piece of art that references something going on in the culture around them or not that culture is still a part of that artist as they are creating that work and therefore influences it regardless. Yeah. And I I honestly think Finney is kind of trying to be like, no, guys, like, chill out as a way to muddy the waters a bit. I mm. can't imagine that he's not having those fears or ideas percolating in his brain. Um, he might not have intended for those themes to come out, but the fact that like one of his first published pieces was something inspired by World War Two, and hey, don't like spread rumors or talk about shit, and that's published in 1943. So the war, the U.S. is already in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know. I feel like with that, we know he's at least like. An engaged citizen. Sure, sure. He's not just, like, writing in a bunker and just being like, it's just art, guys. No, yeah, I I get you there. Um, I do think that with the story being about, like, using up resources and stuff and doing the whole, like, Mr. Anderson, humans are the real virus um, (laughs) sort of take, um, what I can see is that, like, he might have meant the story as a political allegory, just not the one that, that everyone... everybody took away because everyone else didn't give a shit about using up resources because it was 1955 and they were far more concerned about the fact that what if, you know, Mr. Randy down the street at the library is a communist. So the idea of like, oh yeah, they're replacing everyone around you. Like that part hit stronger to home. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause that, that can certainly happen where like, you know, it's the Fahrenheit 451 thing, where, like, everybody thinks Fahrenheit 451 is about censorship, and for Bradbury it was about TV making people stupid. Yeah. Yeah. You could point to a lot of science fiction. <laughs> um, and people kind of missing the point. The point. Yeah. Like, 1984. <laughs> it's not about censorship, it's about misinformation and control the misinformation. Sure. Well, let's let's back up here. Mm-hmm. Come back to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. For sure. So I I didn't read any of this criticism that was saying it was a, there was a lack of originality here, mm. but I do think it's worth calling out the fact that this story, when it was first serialized in Colliers, it was 1954, mm-hmm. and we had already had three major horror science fiction films with a similar idea of something from space coming to invade 
and steal our resources. Mm. So we have 1951's The Thing from Another World. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about that movie, you can listen to episode 154. And then we have 1953's It Came From Outer Space. And there's the idea of replacing people in the town. They can't show emotions. Right. You can hear more about that in episode 161. And then, of course, 1953's Invaders from Mars. Right. Which also does the same replace people with, like, weird slightly off. Yeah. Well, like, that's like a chip in the brain, but right. still, the, the whole thing is still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's episode 164. So, I'm not going to say that this story lacks originality, but there's definitely, like, a milieu that Finney is pulling on without maybe even realizing it. And we know that these stories, or these films that he's pulling on, have that communist fear right. in yeah, yeah. them. So I think that's probably why people latched onto that fear of communism or the Cold War or whatever in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, it's what everyone else is talking about, right? So that's what the conversation is, so that's how people are interpreting it. And yeah, so I, I can see bringing up those movies where this criticism comes from, at least. It's funny that you bring up the thing from another world, because the movie version, at least, while the alien is a plant monster, the movie version takes away the... Um, shapeshifty, duplicating people thing that's in the original novella, who goes yeah. there. But that also, again, speaks to, even in literature, these stories are there. It's, this isn't a fully original idea. Right. The novel, The Body Snatchers, came out in 1955. Mm-hmm. Following year, we have this movie mm-hmm. adapting it, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And it's because of the success of this film that the book in later editions is renamed Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's a close enough title anyway, so it makes sense to update it. Mm -hmm. So that's the novel. Yeah. It's funny that you bring up the, like, ambiguities of interpretation around the novel, because the film has the same stuff going on in terms of there's, since it came out, been a lot of debate back and forth about what the movie's about in terms of its themes. Like, what is it trying to say? The later remakes haven't really had that problem because coming out in the 70s, 90s, and 2000s, they weren't really happening in that same cultural milieu that both the novel and first film were happening in. Mm -hmm. So, to talk about the movie, um, the story in Collier's in 1954 was widely read. I mean, Collier's Magazine is a a big deal, right? You know, Made of Splash was definitely the kind of thing that would get readers' attention. And by reader, I mean readers hired by movie studios whose job it is to, like, search for ideas for movies. And the studio that produced Invasion of the Body Snatchers ultimately as a film is Allied Artists. And we've talked about Allied Artists before, but to give a little reminder... um, Remember monogram pictures? Yes. Yeah. So in our episode on the maze, which is episode 165, I discussed how young producer Walter Mirsch had convinced monogram studio head Steve Brody that TV meant the days of low-budget poverty row films were numbered. So in 1953, monogram changed its name to Allied Artists Productions, a bit of a classier 
well, not that monogram isn't classy. It's just that, like, everybody knows what monogram yeah. movies are like by this point. Allied artists sounds similar to United Artists, yes. which is definitely, like, many steps up the ladder yeah. from monogram. The focus for Allied Artists was what on Mirsch, who is now the head of production, uh, described as B-plus pictures. Basically low-budget films that could proudly and convincingly stand alongside major studio films. So making movies on a B-budget, but trying to make it so that they come across as A-pictures. B-movies with ambition, you could say. <laughs> so Invasion of the Body Snatchers was a major expression of this mentality. So it is in many ways another sci-fi B-movie, but was sort of designed with the intent of sort of being more on an A-level in terms of its, like, artistic ambitions. Production of Invasion of the Body Snatchers was handled by Walter Wanger, who had been working in the film industry since the 1920s. Uh, he had originally been born Walter Futzwanger in uh, San Francisco in 1894. Uh, he came from a Jewish German immigrant family. His mother changed their last name in order to, like, assimilate, and Walter himself was non-observant in terms of his religious beliefs. The family was upper middle class, and so Wanger was able to attend good schools and pursue an interest in live theater and become a theatrical producer in New York. He served in World War I, which is where he first came into contact with filmmaking through the making of propaganda films. After the war, Wanger married silent film star Justine Johnson, and through her met producer Jesse Lasky, who hired Wanger to come work for him at his film production company um, in a job acquiring and vetting books and plays for adaptation into film. He's a reader. Right. Uh, Lasky's company would go through a few iterations, but would come to be known as Paramount. Oh, shit. One of Wanger's first big successes for Paramount was acquiring the rights to the novel The Sheik in 1921, which became a huge, big hit picture starring Rudolph Valentino. Wanger became unhappy with the terms of his job at Paramount, which sort of involved low recognition and low creative input. And, you know, he kind of felt like, right, but I'm the guy who found you that idea that just made you all that money. So uh, in 1924, Lasky made Wanger general manager of production and rose his annual salary from $150,000 to $250,000 a year. When sound came on the scene, Paramount was sort of reluctant to make the switch. They were like, eh, what if this is just a, a fad? Uh, Wanger was a key voice in favor of switching the studio over to sound, and his New York theater connections were vital in bringing experienced theater actors and directors to Paramount. But the studio, suffering the effects of the Great Depression, let Wanger go in 1931. After leaving Paramount, Wanger came to work at Columbia, just as Harry Cohn was starting his initiative to move Columbia out of Poverty Row and into the leagues of the minor studios. Wanger was given greater control of the films he produced at Columbia, and his career began to pick up steam. He would get an Honorary Academy Award in 1946 after serving six years as president of the Academy. 
he formed his own production company and went independent in 1947 in order to produce the 1948 film Joan of Arc, starring Ingrid Bergman, because nobody else in Hollywood thought it was a good idea. Um, and he really put, like, his everything into that movie, which was ultimately distributed by RKO. He was offered another honorary Oscar for his achievement in, like, putting that movie together. But he turned it down because he was upset that the film itself hadn't been nominated for Best Picture. So he kind of felt like it was a bit of a slap in the face. Oh, you're just giving me the, like, participation trophy kind of thing, (laughs) right? Uh, Wanger's wife from 1940 to 1965 was actress Joan Bennett. In 1951, Wanger became convinced that his wife was having an affair with her agent, Jennings Lang, which she always denied. One day, he found them together talking by her car outside Lang's office. Wanger approached, gun in hand, Holy shit! and shot Lang in the thigh and in the groin. What the fuck? Lang's offices were across the street from the Beverly Hills Police Department, and so Wanger was promptly arrested. He waived his rights to a jury and was sentenced to prison. Yeah, so... He's in jail, Ben. Why Why are you talking about him with this 50s movie? He was sentenced to three years um, because Lang was wounded, not killed. <laughs> but it's attempted murder. No, he aimed for his groin. That's what he was aiming for. <laughs> so the first shot that hit him in the thigh was, you know, a miss. And then he <laughs> got him on the second shot. He had no intent of murdering Lang. Just castrating him. Um, oh my god. So, while in prison, Walter Mirsch at Allied Artists credited Wanger as a producer on the 1953 film Kansas Pacific so that Wanger could collect essentially a producer's like salary while he was stuck in prison. Very grateful, Wanger came to produce films at Allied Artists after he got out of prison and continued to go on and have a successful career producing films, uh, such as this one. In 1963, Wanger finally got his nomination for an Academy Award for Best Picture for his production of Cleopatra, the notoriously expensive 20th Century Fox production starring Elizabeth Taylor that nearly bankrupted that studio. Wanger passed away five years later at the age of 74. So in adapting The Body Snatchers, Wanger wanted to avoid confusion with the Val Luton film from 1945, The Body Snatcher. Uh, So he wanted to change the title. Um, A lot of different suggestions were bandied about. Uh, The studio's suggestion was, they come from another world, which, Uh, I mean... Sure, it fits with, like, the style of titles we're getting. Yes. But that also makes it just get blurred. Yeah, yeah. It's like, is this, it came from outer space? Is this the thing from another world? Is this the man from another planet? Like, Is yeah. it them? Yeah, exactly. Eventually, uh, kind of late in the game, the title Invasion of the Body Snatchers was chosen, which, like, in hindsight seems obvious. The adaptation from novel to screenplay was handled by Daniel Mainwaring, a 54-year-old former journalist and mystery novelist. One of his best-known novels was Build My Gallows High, which he adapted into a screenplay as the film noir classic Out of the Past, starring Robert Mitchum and Kirk Douglas and directed by Jacques Tourneur. Yeah. 
Mainwaring served as a front in the 1950s for blacklisted writer Paul Jericho uh, while continuing to work on his own screenplays. The film's director is Don Siegel, a 54-year-old journeyman director who had gotten his start in the montage department at Warner Brothers. Um, For instance, he directed the montage at the start of Casablanca. Mm -hmm. By this time in his career, he had directed nine films, including The Big Steel, which had been written by Daniel Mainwaring, and Riot in Cell Block 11, a film Wanger produced after getting out of prison. Oh, so he's working off of uh, his own experience. Yes, yeah. Later films by Siegel, who passed away in 1991, include the 1964 version of The Killers and the 1971 film Dirty Harry. Nice. At this point in his career, Siegel often employed a young Sam Peckinpah as a dialogue coach on his films. Sam Peckinpah. I'm a dialogue coach. If you can say my last name, you, you pass the course. Peckinpah would go on to be a very famous director in his own right, and would later exaggerate the level of his involvement with this movie to claim that he did uncredited rewrites on the screenplay. Um, there's like a kernel of truth there, because a dialogue coach might like adjust lines of dialogue if they're difficult for an actor to say, but that's not the same as like doing rewrites on the screenplay, and these claims always angered Daniel Mainwaring. For the lead role of Dr. Miles Bennell, Wanger wanted to cast either Dick Powell or Joseph Cotton, and for the female lead role of Becky Driscoll, he wanted either Anne Bancroft or Donna Reed. But Allied Artists allotted Wanger a 20-day shooting schedule and a budget of $350,000, so, you know... He had to set his sights lower. Yeah. Uh, That being said... When Siegel was given this shooting schedule and budget, he said, oh, this picture's going to need, like, 24 days and about 100k more dollars. Like, this is an unrealistic thing. Now, with his limited budget, Wanger cast newcomers Kevin McCarthy and Donna Winter. McCarthy was born in Seattle in 1914, and he was orphaned by the flu pandemic of 1918. Shit, wear your masks. Yep. McCarthy and his three siblings were separated to be cared for by different relatives across the country in Dickensian conditions. He discovered a love of acting in college and appeared in a number of training films during his service in the Air Force in World War II. His big break was appearing in the London debut cast of A Death of a Salesman in 1949. He was the only member of that cast to appear in the 1951 film adaptation. Good for him. McCarthy was good friends with actor Montgomery Clift, and he had some jealousy over the way that Clift's career had taken off into the 1950s. McCarthy resented being cast in a sci-fi B-movie, even though the role basically ended up ensuring his pop culture immortality. After Invasion of the Body Snatchers, McCarthy largely worked as a character actor, taking regular roles until his death in 2010, with his final film coming out in 2012. 2010? Mm-hmm. That's a long run. Yes. Donna Winter was born Dagmar Winter in 1931 in Berlin, uh, but she was raised by her British father and Hungarian mother in Britain. 
She began acting in 1951, playing small roles in British films. She was discovered by a Hollywood agent and came to America in 1953, finding success on television first before winning a contract with Fox in 1955. She had a generally good time working on Invasion of the Body Snatchers, getting along with everyone except for co-star Carolyn Jones. Carolyn Jones as in Morticia Adams? Correct. Awesome. We've seen her before in a previous horror movie. Yes. Uh, I don't remember which one it is, though. I'll, I'll talk about it in a second. Okay, cool. Tell me. So, just to wrap up with Donna Winter, uh, she retired from acting in 1993 and passed away in 2011. So to answer your query, uh, we previously saw Carolyn Jones in House of Wax in 1953. Right, right, because she gets um, she gets killed to be the Joan of Arc figure. Yeah, yeah, she's the roommate. Um, the 25-year-old actress was, at this point, very disappointed with how her career was progressing um, because she lost a part in From Here to Eternity due to pneumonia, and Donna Reed, who took that part, got a Best Supporting Actress Oscar. For it. Yeah, I can see how one would be a little bitter about mm-hmm. that. Since then, she had mostly been appearing on television, and so this kind of resentment is what contributed to her unhappiness on the set of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. She is, of course, most famous as the originator of the role of Morticia Adams on the original Adams Family TV show in 1964. So definitely yet to come. Mm-hmm. Another actress who we will recognize is Virginia Christie, who we last saw way back in The Mummy's Curse and House of Horrors, and is best remembered for her Folgers coffee commercials from 1965 to 1986. Not the siblings Folgers. No, 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 no. She was Mrs. Folgers, um, the, like, mom who makes coffee for the family in the morning and stuff like that. For the family. Even for little Billy and Sally. Sure. Going off to elementary school. Everybody needs Folgers, man. Best part of waking up. Since uh, we last saw her, um, she had become kind of a favorite of producer Stanley Kramer, who would use her as kind of like a regular stock cast actress. And she had appeared in the original 1946 version of The Killers, as well as 1953's High Noon, among many other films. To create the effect of the pod people... Production designer Ted Haworth created full-body nude impressions of the cast out of latex. Nude? Uh, yeah, he was concerned that the studio might, like, raise some eyebrows, but he made, like, an argument to the head of the studio that, like, they're not people. (laughs) They're, like, plants that look like people, so they don't have, like, real genitals, so there isn't really any nudity occurring. Oh my god, okay. Uh, Making the casts for the molds for the latex was a grueling experience for the actors because they were put in full body casts. Yeah. Yeah. Donna Winter recalled that she had to wait inside uh, as it it dried, um, unable to see, breathing through tubes. um, And while she waited, the technicians present went to lunch Leaving her, like, all alone, (laughs) trapped in this thing. Oh my god, I would hate that. Carolyn Jones uh, was claustrophobic. Yeah. Fuck. So the film was originally intended to film on location in Mill Valley, where the novel is set. 
Uh, this ended up being too expensive, and so f- the film was shot in parts of L.A. that they thought kind of looked like a small town. Uh, the movie went over schedule and over budget. Uh, By the amount that the director said it would? Uh, 23 days, so one day less than the director said it would, but three days over schedule. And with a final budget of $416,911. So slightly more than what the studio quoted and slightly less than what the director would thought. Uh, The film was shot by cinematographer Ellsworth Fredericks. And part of the reason they went over schedule is because Siegel insisted on shooting night for night. The 23 days of shooting took place over the course of March and April of 1955. And test screenings took place in June and July of 1955. They did not go well. Oh, uh, no. With audiences finding themselves unable to follow the plot and also laughing in the wrong places in the movie <laughs> against Siegel and Mainwaring's objections. Producer Wanger agreed to the studio's demands to cut out the film's humor. Uh, Siegel and Mainwaring felt that this cut out the film's humanity, but allied artists felt that audiences were confused about the movie's tone and that humor and horror should not mix. The film was originally intended to end on a pessimistic downbeat note, but the studio was wary of that and insisted on the addition of a framing narrative that basically would turn the main story into a big flashback. Um, and thus establish an optimistic outcome to the story. Mainwaring, Siegel, and Wanger all objected, feeling that this would ruin the film, Uh, but ultimately they all agreed to do it um, so that it would be them doing it and not another team, because that was sort of the studio response to their objections. Siegel and Fredericks shot the film in the 1.85 to 1 aspect ratio, which is the flat widescreen format where you shoot full frame and then use mats to create the widescreen effect. The cheap version. Right. And then, against Siegel's objections, Allied Artists had the film printed in a format called Superscope for exhibition at an aspect ratio of 2 to 1. What Superscope means is that you take a non-anamorphic negative and then you crop it to the wider aspect ratio of anamorphic film And then you print it to an anamorphic print for exhibition so that it can be shown on an anamorphic projector on the wider, bigger anamorphic screen. What this does is it creates a wider image that can be shown on a bigger screen, but you're essentially cropping a smaller portion of the image and then blowing it up to a wider, bigger screen, which means that you lose um, sharpness and image detail, which is why Siegel objected to doing this. Um, but, you know, it's yet another poor man's version of doing widescreen. A lot of things that the studio did over Siegel's objections. Invasion of the Body Snatchers was released on February 5th, 1956. It was critically well regarded on release, although the story was criticized as being hard to follow and, like, scientifically not well-grounded. Yeah, that was one of the critiques of the novel as well. People being like, seeds can't travel through space. That's why I didn't really mention those <laughs> criticisms. Because it's like, guys, 
suspend disbelief for a minute. I think a lot of the criticisms of the movie were like that nobody really understood like how are the pods replacing people? It doesn't like matter. How, They're replacing how, people. Yeah, Go exactly. Um, that said, the film was a big commercial hit. It made $3 million at the box office. Wow. In years since, the film's themes of paranoia are often analyzed in the context of 1950s politics, uh, as you mentioned with the novel, um, and the phrase pod people sort of passed into popular parlance as a phrase for the idea that, like, you don't know someone anymore as if they've been, like, replaced by a duplicate, like, their politics have changed drastically, or you might use it to refer to, like, the followers of some politician you don't like as if they're all kind of brainwashed or that kind of thing. I'm not super familiar with the phrase and that connotation. Uh, the phrase that I'm more familiar with for something like that would be, like, drinking the Kool-Aid. But, of course, right. Jonestown hasn't happened yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the big debate about this movie that sort of continues to this day is about whether the threat of the pod people in the film is a metaphor for communism or a metaphor for the anti-communist witch hunts that were going on at the time, conducted by HUAC and Senator McCarthy. Um, which interpretation is favored often depends on the personal politics of the critic giving their analysis. Sure. As for the people making the film, as you already mentioned, Jack Finney denied any political intent behind his novel. Um, but Daniel Mainwaring's left-wing connections sort of suggest the anti-McCarthy interpretation. I was going to suggest that myself, yeah. Siegel felt that the comparison to McCarthy was inescapable, but he tried not to emphasize it. Uh, he didn't want to be seen as, like, preaching to people. Um, and he joked that he interpreted the pod people as movie studio executives. <laughs> Most contemporary reviews took the position that the film was talking about the communist infiltration of America, um, while the movie's star, Kevin McCarthy, saw the pod people as Madison Avenue ad men and the threat as being one of consumerist conformity. Which is why I thought it was really interesting when you said that Finney started out as a copywriter in the ad industry. Kind of is, uh, creates a unique link between Invasion of the Body Snatchers and uh, John Carpenter's movie. They Live, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, if you want to watch along with us today, um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is available on Blu-ray from Olive Films. And to rent on Apple Movies, Google Play, Cineplex... Microsoft, YouTube, and Amazon Prime. Yeah, it's it's nice when we hit a movie that is a bit more mainstream. Yes. Than some of, say, Roger Corman's early work. Yes. Great. Well, uh, folks, if you would like to watch along, um, I presume this will be on our YouTube playlist, which you can find on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956, directed by Don Siegel. See you on the other side, everybody.
back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956, directed by Don Siegel. Ben, what did you think of this? Yeah, I think, you know, this is a really good movie. Um, I think it earns its reputation as, like, one of the all-time classics. There are some things about it that didn't work for me. Um, but overall, like, this is really strong. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I agree that there were parts where it didn't quite work for me. There are definitely places where you can see the seams of the low budget. Mm. But yeah, overall, enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And it was good, I think, for me at least, to finally watch this. Um, It's not like I've been avoiding it, but as you say, it is a classic And it is good to finally fill the hole of that classic. For sure, for sure. Um, Well, let me tell you, the listeners, about what happens in it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Especially because it it is a little different from the novel. Yes. So the film opens with psychiatrist Dr. Hill coming to a hospital in California to the emergency room where there is a man in hysterics. Um, he's saying, you gotta listen to me, uh, otherwise it's gonna be terrible light. I'm not crazy. So Dr. Hill calms him down and's like, okay, then tell me what's up. So we go into the flashback, and this man, he says his name is Dr. Miles Bennell. Uh, he's like, well, it all started last Thursday, <laughs> which Ben commented, and I, I have to agree, is like, fairly recent Mm -hmm. to when these flashbacks are usually given. Yeah, although, like, when we see the flashback, like, we can count the number of days, and the movie does do, like, a good job of making it believable, the amount of events that happen over, like, so short a time. But, yeah, it is, like, (laughs) compared to, to, to usual, it's a little wild. So the camera shifts to small town Santa Mira, uh, where... Dr. Miles Bennell is returning from a conference where he was given, like, this great lecture. But he had to come home early because his nurse was getting a ton of calls for patients to see Dr. Bennell. Bennell is just, you know, a general practitioner in this town. And despite these multiple requests to see him, the day he gets back, no one shows for their appointments. He has some of the usuals, like, oh, I got a concussion, or I hit my thumb when building a fence, but all of the people who were panicking and trying to get a hold of him don't show for their appointments. We learn that he has a former flame, Becky Driscoll. Um, She is back in town after going through a divorce in London. Um, We also learn that Benel has his own um, divorce in his past. Um, Anyways, Becky comes in and she's like, yeah, so my cousin Wilma is really concerned that her uncle, Ira, is not actually her uncle. Like, he he seems the same, acts the same, but she doesn't think that he's actually her uncle. Like, he's been replaced. Yeah, that he's an imposter, not that, like, they aren't blood-related. Yeah. (laughs) Um, During this time, Benel also runs into young Jimmy, uh, who runs from his house and tries to run away from home because he thinks that his mom is not his mom. Again, that she has been replaced. Now, either one of these incidences, I think Benel would be like, oh, that's a little odd, but like, let's look into this. The fact that it's two cases 
has his wheels turning. He asks a psychiatrist friend of his, Dr. Dan Kaufman, and he says, I think it's an epidemic of mass hysteria, but nothing to worry about. (laughs) Yeah, just those epidemics of mass hysteria that go through small towns every once in a while when you're living on the brink of nuclear annihilation every minute of your day, of your life. While Becky and Benel are out on a date... Do you want to do, like, Becky and Miles? While Becky and Miles are out on a date, Miles gets a call to the Belsick household, where Jack and his wife, Teddy, show Miles and Becky, who has come along for the ride, a strange body that they found in their house. This strange body appears to be lifeless, but there's no damage in the sense of, like, foul play. Um, Further, the face, it looks apparently like it's, like, bland. Like, anyone could have that face, but no one could have that face. It's like, there's no real defining characteristics about it. Yeah, it doesn't have, like, scars. It doesn't have wrinkles. It's like a freshly dry-cleaned face. (laughs) And they try to get fingerprints, and there is none. The body is just fresh. Mm-hmm. Default um, out of the character creator. <laughs> Middle sliders all the way down. Right. Now, Miles does admit, like, well, this is very, very strange, very puzzling. I understand why you don't want to call the police, because we don't know what's up with this. How about you, Jack, and Teddy watch it... And if anything changes, you call me. And if nothing changes, then in the morning we'll call the police. This is apparently a reasonable plan, because that's what they do. By this time, um, Miles has dropped Becky back home, and he uh, heads back to, to his own house. We see that this strange man has indeed woken up. Uh, and what is particularly terrifying to Teddy is... Um, while they had Miles and Becky over, uh, Jack accidentally, like, cut his hand. And when she sees this strange man wake up, he looks more like Jack, and he also has that same cut on his hand. So, like, becoming more and more like a duplicate. Mm-hmm. Jack and Teddy go to Miles' house, while he goes to get Becky. Because he's like, fuck, some weird shit's going on. I have to go get Becky. And he in order to avoid waking up her dad. She's a grown woman who's had a divorce, but, like, she's just at her, her dad's house. Yeah, she doesn't want to, like, anywhere it, else to live. Yeah, I just want to make it clear that it's not like she's, like, a teen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so to avoid waking up her dad, Miles breaks into the basement where he finds a duplicate of Becky in the basement. He manages to get Becky back to his house where they, along with Jack and Teddy, get... Uh, their psychologist friend, Dan Kaufman, over to be like, is this part of the mass hysteria? What what the fuck? Kaufman is like, yeah, you guys are just panicking over nothing. Like, obviously, a man has been murdered, but there's no body doubles. Like, what are you guys talking about? Um, So they're like, okay, well, let's go take him to see the body at Jack's house. The body has disappeared. Of course. So now the, there's definitely a mystery. Kaufman does agree that, yes, something's going on because a man's dead body has now disappeared. Way to go, guys. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, ah, oh, we'll take him to Becky's basement. That body has also disappeared. And 
basically, Kaufman is like, there's nothing here. And convinces Miles that nobody was here. Um, you, you just panicked. So let's go to the police about this other body that's now missing. Now, they are yelling in the basement. So <laughs> Becky's dad comes down with a shotgun. He's like, what the fuck are you guys doing? And they're like, no, it's, it's fine. Sorry to wake you. And he's like, well, I already called the police. And a policeman pokes his head in. He's like, the fuck is going on, guys? It's a small town. Like, everyone knows each other's name. Yeah, like, everyone grew up with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, Mr. Beat Cop uh, that we know, um, here's the situation. And he's like, oh, yeah, we, we found a body in a haystack. We found the body. It's fine. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. But because everything's still a little weird, um, Jack and Teddy, Miles and Becky all stay at Miles' house that night. So it seems like everything's okay until everyone's over at Miles' house, right? And they're having, like, a barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> As you do. Um, with martinis galore. Yeah, it's the 50s. When suddenly, Miles hears something strange in his greenhouse. And he looks, and dun-dun-dun, there's weird seed pods birthing these duplicates of everyone in the house. Mm-hmm. So we got a Becky, we got a Teddy, we got a Jack, and we got a Miles. Mm-hmm. And the way that they are birthed is like this pod cracks open and like bubbles come out and it, these bodies are still being formed, but clearly like yeah. they're just like these like empty shells of a person. Yeah. It's gross. It's pretty neat. It's pretty <laughs> well done. <laughs> So everyone's freaking out. Miles decides, okay, Jack and Teddy, you drive out of town and go for help. Because clearly, like, duplicates are spreading. Like, we know we actually saw what we saw, and shit is going down. Um, They also surmise, based on the barest of evidence of anything, that the switch happens when you are asleep. So they're like, okay, don't fall asleep. Jack and Teddy drive out of town for help, and Miles and Becky are going to try to find some allies in town to determine who is not a pod person yet. Mm -hmm. Um, But as they discover and try to find allies, they find that everyone has been replaced. They hide out at Miles' doctor office, and they're like, okay, let's take these drugs, we can't sleep. The next morning, they see in the town square... Um, a ton of the townsfolk gathering, basically to get pods from farmers that just have trucks loaded up with them and to drive them to neighboring towns where they have relatives or friends. A reason to go see them and then get them replaced and expand the invasion. Mm-hmm. Next thing they know, Jack is knocking on the door. They're like, oh, Jack, thank God, like you got help, right? And he's like, nope. I've turned! And here's Kaufman as well, who is also a pod person. So they have Miles and Becky cornered in the doctor's office. And they explain there were seeds drifting through space. And they landed in a nearby Californian farmer's field. And it has spread since then. And that is the premise from the book. Right. So that's definitely, like, you know, staying true to the source material here. Now... Miles and Becky are the only two people in town who are not pod people. And Jack and Kaufman are like, there's nothing to worry about. You will go to sleep and you'll wake up in this new body. This this pod person body just takes over your brain. 
it doesn't hurt, and you'll be fine. And Becky's like, but what about love and humanity? And Jack and Kaufman explain, well, there's no need for any emotions. Yeah, like when you reproduce by copying people's cells from your pod, you don't need to fuck. So love is irrelevant. (laughs) Love is more than fucking then. But also, like, there's no need for, like, arguments. Everything is very simple and harmonious. Um, It's a stress-free world. Yeah, there's no art or creativity or faith or, like, differences of belief. All the things that, like, make people hate each other, basically, right? Exactly. There's just survival. Yeah. Simple. Harmonious. Exactly. And um, Becky and Miles, who have since, like, rekindled their love, their long-lost love, and um, have seen, like, failed marriages, and know that love has highs and lows, are like, no, love must go on, humanity must go on. Um, Becky goes so far as to say she would rather die than lose this. Mm-hmm. Miles and Becky manage to escape on foot, Going through valleys, up hills, and eventually hiding out in what appears to be an abandoned uh, mine, like coal mine. And now remember, like, they can't sleep, so they are exhausted. They're on the run with, like, this mob chasing them. So they are on the brink. Yeah, the entire town seems to be chasing them on foot. Um, And they haven't slept in at least two days. And just a point of clarification, just to... Because I think this is important. Um, once you turn into a pod person, it's not like you have, like, psychic links to everyone. And it's so not you a know, hive like, mind. Yeah, it's not a hive mind. You just are all, like, you all have the same politics. Right. You're all <laughs> united in purpose. And that purpose is to make more pod people. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, that, like, that, for example, there's the way that they get out of that sticky situation in the doctor's office um, is walking down the street as if they are pod people with, like, vacant stairs and whatever. It's, like, you know, you gotta have it when, like, you've got a, uh, a zombie-type situation of everyone will get you if you show any sign of not being them. Yeah. While in the mine, uh, at one point... Miles leaves Becky to go check some music that they hear, because they think, oh, maybe there are some survivors. Turns out it's just a radio. But when he comes back, Becky has fallen asleep. Dun, dun, dun. And she wakes up, and she's like, I've turned. Uh, Why do you want to destroy me? Why do you want to destroy us, Miles? Mm -hmm. And Miles is, like, horrified. So he runs. He's, like, trying to run to the highway. Becky shouts, he's here, so now he's being chased again. And he runs practically all the way to Los Angeles. I do like that the crowd following him gives up once he reaches, like, civilization. Because they're like, ah, no one's going to believe him. Yeah. And he runs into traffic, shouting, they're here. You have to believe me. They're coming to get you. They aren't human. You're next. You're next. And that's where the movie ended before adding this flashback. Mm-hmm. So we cut to the hospital, and um, clearly Miles has just finished telling the story, he, and he's just been picked up. That's the implication. And he says, oh, you guys don't believe me, yeah, but I'm not crazy. I'm not. 
the emergency room doctor and Dr. Hill kind of go out into the hallway and they're like, wow, like this would be quite a nightmare if it's not real. Um, but surely it can't be real. Suddenly a man is brought in from like a, a car accident and the paramedic is like, yeah, this, this guy has like extensive injuries from the accident and we had to dig him out of like these weird pod things. Yeah, from like the truck that flipped over or whatever. Yeah, and this truck was coming from Santa Mira. And suddenly Dr. Hill is like, oh shit, (laughs) everything's real. And he calls to like the two officers in uh, Miles' room and he's like, get me the FBI, get me the governor, get blockades out on the highway, stop any truck coming to or from Santa Mira. And um, Miles just has this look of like, the battle continues. Sure. The end. Yeah, so um, one of the interesting things I've read about this movie is that, like, it has been argued that without the frame narrative, so the movie is originally intended, it reads as anti-McCarthy, because then it's about resisting conformity and feeling, like, hunted. But with the addition of the frame narrative, it's about anti-communism, because now it's about, like, an external threat against America that the federal government is going to go solve. I don't, like, I'm not saying I agree with that analysis. I'm just saying that's the analysis that I've seen. Yeah, I see where they're coming from. The movie would have been a lot stronger without the frame narrative. Yeah, I can also understand why they added it. Yeah, and I I give some credit to the frame narrative because, you know, because it was done by the same people who did the rest of the movie, they do try their best to try and retain some of the sense of danger at the end of the movie. Like, okay, we're going to call the government and take care of this, but, like, the movie doesn't end with, like, a spinning newspaper that's like, FBI kills pod people. Um... <laughs> Like everything solved. Yeah, like it's still all up in the air. It's just that this is 1956 when people had confidence that if the government was going to set out to do something, it would achieve that thing because there was a 90% income tax on high earners. And so there was a lot of money in the system to do things like build highways and track down pod people. Whereas, like, <laughs> now the government would be like, ah, there are no pod people. I was the first one to tell you about the pod people. <laughs> We've definitely Christ. hunted down and destroyed all the pod people. Um, and there's still pod people everywhere. Yeah. All of which is to say that, like, even if the ending is still up in the air, an audience in 1956 would view the government's on the job as it's, it's fine. The fact that anyone can call it the FBI, (laughs) like at one point Miles tries and he can't get through because the pod people have gotten to the operators of the phone service or whatever. Mm -hmm. And like, it also, it just reminded me of fucking like little Billy in like Invaders from Mars Mm. calling up the, like this, the governor or like Washington DC. Yeah. Getting like a general on the phone. And like... Is this how this used to work? Yeah, could just anyone call? <laughs> it, it it makes sense when you remember that there weren't websites, right? <laughs> no, because like, like you know, you can still call 
an FBI office, but like, I'm sure that like, there's a lot of screening involved. If you're going to make inquiries or whatever, there's probably like a form online you can fill out and all these kinds of things that wouldn't exist back then. Like how else are you supposed to get in touch with the FBI? Sure. I mean, I, I would just think that before you call up the FBI or Washington DC, that there's like a certain person you call first. Who do you think that is? I don't know. I'm not from the fifties. Cause like, I would assume that when you ask an operator to connect you to the FBI, what they're actually going to do is like, you know, ring up the local FBI office or whatever, and you'll end up talking to some like receptionist sure. at first, right? Okay. You're not gonna get like J. Edgar Hoover himself <laughs> like picking up something like, Yes, Dr. Dr. Bennell, what do you need? That seemed to be the implication <laughs> right. then. Th- this plot is something. I could follow it. Mm. Maybe it's also because, like, I read the plot synopsis of the novel. Mm. But definitely this plot is, it takes some logical or illogical leaps Mm. that, like, you're like, wait, huh? How did we get here? Or even just, like, not even explaining why Miles isn't immediately, like, you have a fucking body on your pool table, Jack. What the fuck? He's just immediately, like... Huh, weird. Weird. Well, it's... Well, like, okay. So, I I also have some issues with the plot. But it sounds like they're maybe different from yours. Because, <laughs> um, like, when he goes to Jack's house, like, Jack meets him outside and is like, okay, before you go in there, like, forget you're a doctor for a second. Don't immediately just say, call the police. Just go in there and, like, take a look at what's there and tell me what you think. But at no point is he like, where the fuck did this body come from? Well, I think because he pulls the the sheet back and, like, the first thing that he notices is how weird it is, right? Like, that's why he's not like, did you murder a dude? Because, like, immediately you're looking at, like, a body in front of you that's, like, you know, a fucking crash test dummy of a person. You're going to be like, this is weird. And, And there's already been the weird stuff going on like so so much that like his brain immediately goes to like oh what if this is some weird attempt at duplicating jack because he's already been talking to all these people talking about like oh my uncle's not my uncle i do however think yeah that the reviewers who were like this the story's a little out to lunch um i can empathize with them personally i think the script is very good at slowly ramping things up in such a way that it's both believable that Miles doesn't really believe until it's too late, but also believable that, like, by the time he does believe, so many options are closed to him. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's one of those, you aren't yelling at the movie, like, just phone the blah, or just drive to here, because, like, it's not quite weird enough yet. You're like, oh, that's strange. And he doesn't have the pieces to put together. And, like, you know, as he's forming those pictures, then, like, you know, there's the thing where Kaufman shows up and is like, you're just imagining things, blah, 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 blah. The thing about human beings, I feel, is, like, even if his encounter after talking to Kaufman was like, no, I'm pretty sure I saw a body. Like, human beings really want everything to be okay, and they really want to just go back to their normal lives. 
And I, like, I think we've seen a lot of examples of that this year. So the fact that he's like, lets himself believe that for a bit. And then, you know, as things are getting worse, by the time it's clear, like, uh Oh, it's too late. Like they're barbecuing at night the next day. So like, yeah, the phone girls are all pod people and the cops are all pod people. And the dude who told you you were imagining things yesterday, he was probably already a pod person. Like, one of the smartest things the movie does is, you know, it has to be set in a small town. Because the horror of the story is seeing people you've known your whole life not be those people. Yeah. But only in the most, like, subtle, off way, right? Which is, like, it's so unnerving. Um, so it doesn't work if it's in a city. Yeah. Because, like, you don't, like, people don't even know the names of, like, their neighbors in an apartment building, right? Like, there isn't going to be the same. some people do. Some, yeah, but, like, there's so many strangers that, like, it wouldn't have the same effect. But if Miles had been in the town from the beginning, like, it would become unbelievable that, like, he wouldn't notice until it was too late. So the fact that he's, like, coming in from out of town on this conference, like... Yeah, he's been away for, like, two weeks. Yeah, so it really helps the story because it's like, oh, this has already started. You're coming here just at the tipping point of it being too late, right? Yeah. Where I think, for me, the movie doesn't work logically, and where I agree with the reviewers, is understanding how the pods work. Yeah. The mechanics of it. Because, like, people keep trying to, like, put pods in, like, Miles and Becky's trunk. Right, or, like, the room next to where they're standing or whatever. Yeah, and it, it's unclear, like, how the pods know which person to duplicate. Yeah. And then also, Becky yeah, okay. is like, okay, so he, he's like, no, Becky, stay awake. And she's like, I'm trying, I'm trying. And then it's like when you're so tired, you, like... Um, like black out for a quick minute and come right. back. It's within that moment that she turns and it's like, so how is she suddenly a pod person? But but also based on the rest of the movie, that's not how this works either. Exactly. So, so here's the thing. So not enough is explained and I don't sometimes with movies like this, like, I don't need everything explained to me. So, for instance, unlike the novel, the pod people in this movie are never given a motive yeah. for what they're doing. They're never like, our plan is to, our world was dying and we needed yours. Like, blah, blah, blah. They don't, there's no that speech. And I'm, I'm fine with that. They're aliens. Like, it's okay if I can't comprehend their alien minds or whatever, right? And, you know, it also helps the who do the pod people represent questions stay ambiguous if like they don't have a specific motive yeah um but what sucks is like not knowing the mechanics because that's important to plot because the way it's explained by the pod people when they're explaining it to miles and becky the impression i got is that you know you put this seed pod near a person and it percolates and it copies whatever life is nearest to it. And it copies it like a cell at a time until it's like a perfect duplicate. And then at some point the pod splits open and there's like a gooey white you inside and it still isn't fully formed. And then it takes a while to keep copying you. 
And then when you're asleep and it's nearby, it copies your mind kind of the same way. And then question mark. Yeah. Because the implication from what I would assume based on what we see and we're told is that then, you know, the pod person wakes up and is like, cool, I'm a pod person who looks, sounds, acts, and has all the memories of this real person. And then I replace that person. What's never made clear at any stage is what happened to the original person. Yeah. So watching the movie, my assumption is like, yeah, and then they like kill the original person or something and throw their body in a ditch or whatever. Um, But then when it's being explained to Miles and Becky, the pod people are explaining it to them as if like they're pitching... You know, like a, a, a... Like a um, commune. Right, where it's like, don't worry, it's fine, just give into it. You'll like it, actually. There's no pain, and you'll wake up in your new body. Yeah. As if, like, when the mind gets copied, the original, like, dies or something. Uh, as if the mind isn't so much being copied as transferred, and then they wake up as pod people. Which still doesn't answer the question of what happens to the original body, right? Yeah. In the novel, it's never explained, but it's never, like, brought to the surface in this way that the film is doing. And ultimately, you're 100% right, Sarah. It wouldn't really matter. Like, you can leave some of these questions unanswered, except... For Becky. For Becky, because that's the climax of the movie, right? That's the, the moment when Miles is, like, totally alone. And he kind of snaps and, like, gets so desperate and everything and, and whatnot. Um, because the way that Becky transforms... So instead, it seems like what happens is that she fell asleep for a moment and then she was taken over. And, like, Miles's final voiceover implies that's how it works, too. But if you're taken over by the alien intelligence, why do we need to grow a second weird body in a seed pod... That, like, is obviously yeah. not... Yeah. So so it breaks the whole movie because they wanted to have this gotcha ending that doesn't follow the rules they've set out for themselves. And they've made the rules so vague, you know, partly to give themselves the wiggle room to just kind of do whatever. But it's too vague because your audience is pulled out of the story wondering, wait, what? This isn't... How does this work? Yeah. The seed pods themselves look very silly. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I thought they looked cool. Like, and by cool, I mean, like, realistic. Like, they looked like giant seed pods to me. I, they... I, I believe them. <laughs> when, when Miles takes them out of the trunk and puts them on the side of the road and then, like, torches them, mm-hmm. they, the way that he had to expend no energy at all to move mm. them, it was like, okay, yeah, that's like paper mache, like that... Yeah, they're like rubber. They're like a big rubber thing. I mean, it is true that, like, there isn't enough work done in terms of the sound or, like, on the acting in that way. I think the design of them looks good. The fake bodies and the, what I'll call, birthing Mm. was neat, though. I liked how viscerally gross they made it with, like, goop and bubbles. The part that didn't work for me about that is that they find those four bodies birthed out of the pods and, you know, they grab like pitchforks and stab them to death or whatever. And like, there was no work done to sell that because the pitchfork hits the 
fake body. And, like, there's no blood or anything that comes out, which is, like, fine, it's the 50s. But, like, the sound that it makes isn't, like, a... Like, I stabbed a dude sound. It's, like, a punk, as in, like, I hit the side of, like, a, a inflated tire with something. Like, it sounds like he's hitting rubber. And it's, like, you need to not have that be the sound. Because that's yeah. going to make my brain go, oh, that's a big rubber person. And I imagine that it probably looked like when you stab jello with a fork, mm. which is not what you want when you're stabbing a double of yourself. Sure, sure. Um, so it, you know, it was neat. Could have done a little better. For me, where the seams of the low budget come through is near the climax. Okay. Because it's just like a very long uh, chase. Sure. Um, it's like, oh, and I'm talking about like once they leave on foot from the right. doctor's office. Yeah, yeah. Running through the hills and just like continually running and then continually running again. Hiding in the mine. Okay, now we're continually running again. Right. And it wasn't the worst, but it was just like, this is a lot of running, and you're not doing much to really keep my tension up um, until, like, maybe when you get to the mine. So it was it was fine, but that's where I could start to see the seams. Um, for me, that sequence didn't go on long enough for that to trigger in my brain, but I, I can see what you're talking about. Yeah. As much as we we kind of talk about the plot or the way things work being vague or mm. anything like that, I do think it's pretty well written. Yes. And, and that's what I meant earlier about, like, the stuff of, like, the mechanics of how the thriller plot works. Like, I think the, the thriller plotting is really tight. It's the sci-fi plotting that's that's messy to me. Yeah. Um, some very risque one-liners <laughs> throughout. Yeah, and, like, some good character work done to make everyone feel like real people, right? Where, like, you know, how many movies from the 50s can you name where, like, the lead romantic couple are a couple of, like, divorcees? Yeah. And where it's, like, they have this really, like, complicated backstory that's, like, oh, yeah, they were, like, high school sweethearts and then like he left to go to college and she left to go to London and then like he got married and she got married and they both got divorced and even as their love is like rekindling he's like yeah you shouldn't be with me I'm a doctor it's no good and like you know their friends um Jack and Teddy like Jack's a writer and like you know um everyone's got personality and history and that's so important when it's a movie about a your, small town. A small town and all your friends getting taken over by doubles, right? So that we can tell when Jack shows up later that he's a pod person, right? Yeah, so I, I agree with that for sure. I also think just, like, the performances are good across the board. Like, Kevin McCarthy in particular as Miles I think is a standout. Like, I think he does a really, really good job in this movie of, like, believably, you know, going from, oh, Huh, that's weird to they're coming for you. Ah! And like it was just, you know, nice to have a male lead in one of these movies who wasn't cardboard. Yeah, and it's also nice how um for lack of a better word, trusting the movie is of science. Oh, sure. Like our main lead is a doctor who isn't mad 
Or at least uh, he's he's mad by the end, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, originally, with this idea of like mass hysteria, things like that, uh, Miles suggests suggests some of his patients go see a psychiatrist because, like, you know, I don't think this person's a double. I think the problem is like your perception. So you should talk to someone about this. And it's just very like. Um, matter of fact yeah. and not like scandalized or it's, anything like that. It's one of those things that like I, the line that stuck out to me was when she asks Miles like, am I crazy? And he says, no, you're not crazy, but you don't have to be crazy to need psychiatric help. Yeah. Um, which was good. It is one of the things that like can be a little shocking to people who have stereotypes of the 1950s to go back and actually see stuff from that period because I think the 50s get stereotyped as this very, like, conservative time. Like, it's when, when, when you know, the MAGA people are like, let's make America great again. The assumption is, like, the 50s is the time that they're talking about when America was great. So because we, we do that and because, you know, every hack university student writing a paper is going to write about, like, mom and dad and the white picket fence and, like, the values of whatever... Um, we, we associate it as a conservative time, but what we associate as being conservative values has shifted over time, and we don't talk about that enough, because the whole, like, anti-science, anti-reason thing wasn't a huge widespread part of American values or conservative values in the 1950s. Like, yeah, there were people who thought geology was bunk because the world's only 6,000 years old, but they were like a super small minority. And most of the country was pro-science because the attitude of the time was that America was the greatest nation on earth and like the world's leading superpower because of its control of science and technology. Yeah. And so therefore science and technology were good. It's always kind of a shock when you can see a movie from a time period that sort of breaks your stereotypes of that time period a little bit. Speaking of MAGA. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I kind of said this at the beginning when you you talked about, like, with the flashback and without the flashback of it Mm. being depicting the pod people as McCarthy's or communists. Mm. To me, it reminded me of the feeling of, like, when you come back to your old hometown or wherever you might have grown up and everything is different yet the same. Like Mm -hmm. that weird feeling of melancholic nostalgia or like where you've grown and changed and people haven't and so you're seeing things in them that you didn't see before like you're like oh like old aunt Martha is like the nicest kindest little old lady and like she is but now you're noticing just how often she talks about how those people are taking our jobs or something and you're like huh exactly that didn't used to bother me and i also noticed like how this movie shows people, or at least, at the very least, Miles and Becky chasing memories and chasing nostalgia, Hmm. and how important when, for example, uh, Wilma is concerned that her uncle Ira is not, has been copied, and Miles places emphasis on, like, well, he remembers the memories, like, that you've made together, like, he's the same person, 
And she's like, but there's no emotion there in those uh, when he recalls those memories. Yeah, just the emphasis on memories, going back to that old flame, things like that, and the idea of like nostalgia and the melancholy that I find that goes with nostalgia quite frequently. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, almost by definition. Yeah, that just seems to be so at play here. I'm not really sure what kind of point I'm making here. I think it's just important to bring up. And then also the fact that Becky, too, is has returned after being away for so long because of, like, leaving for London, getting married, having a divorce, now is back in town for, like, a month. And these are the people who stay not pod people for the yeah. longest time, right? There's something in here about the conformity of small towns. The way that, you know, to survive in a small community, you kind of have to buy into that small community, right? Because anything super weird is going to stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah, I think, you know, the movie has to be set in a small town for a lot of its themes to work. At the very least, a suburb of a city. Yeah, yeah. But I think the small town makes it, it work better because it needs to be isolated enough that, like, you wouldn't just be like, Hey, nine one one, send a SWAT team. Here's 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 the thing about like the whole what do the pod people represent thing. Like, I can understand why people in the fifties would be thinking of it in terms of either communism or the communist witch hunts or whatever. Because again, we talked about like living in your own cultural milieu, and I think you can look at this movie and see like what we're talking about about like you know when you see your parents at Christmas and you realize that since the last time you saw them, they've been watching nothing but Fox news and like they're weirdly brainwashed. And like, that's the reason why pod people became like a popular phrase in like discussing the, you know, generation gap in the 1960s or the differences in political opinions and this kind of stuff. All that being said, just looking at what's in the movie. Yeah. Just going by the text, the closest, I think, argument you can make that is supported by the text would be the communism one. And I only say that because, not because the pod people are particularly communist, um, but they do reflect fears of communism in the 1950s American milieu better than they reflect the fears of McCarthyism. Yeah. Because the pod people are like, this is going to be an easier life where you're just taken care of and there's no love, there's no hardship, and there's no faith. And the big thing that like scaremongered about communism in the 50s with Americans was that the Soviet Union was this like atheist nation that had outlawed the church. And that was like one of the biggest, it's it's still like one of the biggest things like, like, I don't know. American political rhetoric is weird to me because I live in Canada, but, like, you still hear Americans talk about, like, godless communists, which, to me, as a human in a different country in 2021, like, sounds so weird. Yeah. But but that's one of the big things. And so I think the communism thing is closer. The McCarthyism thing doesn't really work so much for me because... The hunted feeling, the feeling of like I'm being hunted and there's nowhere to turn and everyone's betraying me, that's a McCarthyism thing. But the pod people are basically, if they're a representation of a political ideology, they're trying to convert you, right? 
And the communist witch hunts weren't about converting people. It was about rooting people out and destroying them so they couldn't harm America. Yeah, I think that's apt. I will say that the paranoia and witch hunt aspect the is still there. The feeling that you there. can't trust people. And that, like, everyone you know can and will turn on you. Right. I think is a, a an accurate feeling of, like, someone who would be targeted by McCarthyism and is not sure whether they can trust any of their old friends. Yeah. Um, and, and things like that. I will... I will say that, like, the reason why you can have these arguments about this movie is because, frankly, the pod people are very vague. Yeah. Like, the closest we get to, like, what are their motivations is them giving this speech about how, like, we're going to give you an easy life without love or faith or freedom or any of these troubling human concepts. And that's, like, that means that they could just represent any generic evil force. Yeah. Because, you know, making it so that the bad guys are anti-freedom or whatever is like, yeah, that doesn't speak to any particular political mm -hmm. ideology. It speaks to they're the bad guys. Yeah. Right? This movie is about fears of conformity. Mm -hmm. Whether that conformity is communism, McCarthyism, racism, small yeah. town, -ism. like, ism. If you want to be an individual, you should fear the pod people. Right. And everyone is going to see themselves as the individual hero, regardless of what their politics are. Yeah, the movie's kind of a Rorschach test. Yeah. Um, for sure. What I want to kind of raise a question of is, is that brilliant? Because it means this movie can play to anyone and be universal for anyone, and it works just as well in 2021 as it did in 1956, and so on and so forth. Or is that cowardice? Because then the movie's not specifically saying anything about anything. It's not taking a stand for or against any one thing. You know, the fact that a supporter of Senator McCarthy can watch the movie and be like, fuck yeah, I'm the hero of this movie. And the fact that, like, someone who is blacklisted could watch this movie and go, fuck yeah, I'm the hero of this movie. Like, does that mean that the movie is, you know, m kind of morally bankrupt because it's not actually expressing something? I think it makes the movie weak mm. on that front. I feel uncomfortable describing it as cowardice or morally bankrupt. I will say that if you aren't willing to stand for something, you don't stand for anything. Sure. Um, so I, I do see it as a fault. Because, yeah, like, I don't know. I'm conflicted just because on a, like, if your goal is to get your movie seen by the most people... And to be a work of art that will last forever. The more universal your themes, the better. Yeah. But on the other hand, like, you know, like I said with the, like, oh, they're anti-freedom thing. There's a threshold of universality where what you're saying starts just becoming platitudes. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, yeah, of course the heroes stand for love. Like, regardless, <laughs> regardless. Like, I'm sorry. Regardless of who you think your political enemies are and what political philosophy you stand for and, and whatever, there is no mainstream political movement that's ever been like, let's outlaw love. That's just a thing that people who are villains in movies say. Yeah. Because it's something that everyone in the audience can recognize as like, well, that's wrong. 
Yeah. So, like I said, to me, that's a big flaw. Um, I think this movie would be much stronger if it stood for something. That being said, its goal is to make as much money as possible, which it did. Right. To that end, I guess you could say that it is brilliant. Right. Because its goal is to make money first, Mm -hmm. and then second, to be a, a piece of art, and by that I mean to say something. Right. Maybe there is something worthwhile in being a movie that can speak to everybody. It's just more difficult to see that as worthwhile when, like, those, you know, when some of those everybodies want to view the other everybodies as the inhuman space people that it's okay to burn to death because they're just plant monsters. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole whack of, like, uh, rhetoric of dehumanization Mm -hmm. of the other... Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, that the, the, we could go into, but yeah. we're not in a university class. We for don't need sure, to for go sure. into that. I mean, it, it, you know, and that runs the gamut from seeing people as metaphorically subhuman to like wild conspiracy theories where people have been replaced by aliens and therefore it, they're not human. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk about a couple other things I really liked about this movie watching it. Um, go for it. So, a lot of this is just like, hey, I'm glad to be watching a movie made by professionals. Um, music was good. Yeah, the music's great. Um, it feels very modern and contemporary for the time. Yeah. Uh, with uh, a lot of emphasis on, like, piano for, like, the dramatic tension. Um, of course, like, it's dated to a modern ear, but it's way more contemporary to 1956 than a lot of the B-movies we've been seeing that are using, like, 1940s library music still. Yes. Yeah, so there's a lot less, like, angry brass, is how I'll describe it. That is perfect. Yeah. Good job. (laughs) Uh, and, And instead it's more of, like, you know, I wouldn't describe the score as jazzy, but I would describe its choice of instruments as jazz influenced. Lo fi jazz you can chill to. Ah. <laughs> Hi-fi jazz you can run away screaming from your small town to. Also, the movie has really fantastic stark black and white cinematography. Yeah. You could tell they took the time they needed to make things look nice. Yeah, and like shooting on location really shows like when they're walking through a hallway and you're like, oh, that's a real hallway. And I can tell because that exit sign is giving off real light. And this hallway's small and thin and cramped. And, like, the walls look real. And, I don't know, just, you know, and the sunlight streaming through that window is real sunlight. It's not an arc light sitting on a stand outside the window. And, like, it helps ground the story in, like, a gritty realism that then helps sell, like, all the fantastic bullshit. Yeah, and it adds, like, a... A neat noir element. Yeah, that helps the, like, paranoia, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You gonna talk about those Dutch angles? Oh, sure, yeah. There's some good good uses of Dutch angles that tell you that, um... Hey, something weird's about to happen. And it's the 1950s. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's good. It's good. The movie looks really good. It is, if you know what to look for... You can definitely tell it was not shot for this aspect ratio. Some of the framing is a little too tight. People don't have enough headroom. There are shots where you can tell that it's been, like, 
blown up a bit from like a portion of the frame because like things that really should be in focus aren't and and stuff like that if you know what to look for if yeah you, i didn't notice any yeah of that. If, if you like haven't gone to film school you know or you don't have like a major interest in like cinematography or photography or whatever you're not going to notice it's not anything that's going to pull you out of the movie i'm just saying that like if you have the eye you'll notice it well let's move on to ranking for sure all right sarah so where were you looking well the two films that this really reminded me of and i feel are is easily comparable to that are already on the list is The Thing from Another World, mm-hmm. 1951, mm-hmm. currently ranked at number 23. Mm-hmm. Just a reminder, people can listen to that at episode 154. Mainly because of the, like, space vegetable invasion. Right. Um, and fears about communism. Yeah, this movie also shares that with a sci-fi novel turned movie, Day of the Triffids. Yeah, I've been... I've been really wondering, like, what is with all the, like, aliens being vegetables? Yeah, what the fuck? What? Why? Why, what, why are we what so... What is going on why here? Are, hey, listen, listeners, I know that we usually do a really good job of, like, contextualizing the fears expressed in a film within the context of the society that made that film, but, like, there are some things that we even do not know. So if you have any explanation for why the fuck everyone in the 50s was scared of carrots like drop us a line the other movie that i feel is directly comparable in terms of its content as well as quality is it came from outer space for sure uh currently ranked at number 56 okay um it came from outer space is from 1953 it's episode 161 if people want to take a listen now, obviously, a range of 23 to 56 is a bit too large. Yeah. So in an attempt to narrow it down, I turned my eyes to some of the films that really stand out to me as, like, wonderful horror and just, like, mm-hmm, love it. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I settled at The Man Without a Face, El Hombre Sin Rostro, at number 42, um, from 1950, it just has such a unique look and approach to horror, um, really jiving with that German Expressionism, surrealism, nightmarish aspect with a thriller um, that while we saw it coming from a mile away, it really surprises the audience of the day. It, um, it just, it, it also felt like it had, you know, a point of view that it was doing. It wasn't just waffling. Uh, waffling's not really the right word, but as we said, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is happy to sit on that fence. Um, so I felt like a good range for me, personally, was 42, The Man Without a Face, down to 56, It Came From Outer Space. Okay, my range is entirely above yours. Okay. Um, I also started with comparing this to Thing From Another World at 23, um, I decided I liked this better because even though Thing from Another World is really good, it kind of sucks because the alien is just James Arness with a carrot head being real tall, and that's not as good as the novella that it's based on. And this, I think, is a better horror movie because, yes, it's still plants, 
but like what you're afraid of is that like anyone around you could be one of them. It's almost like a a change in like the thing from another world, the fifties movie, and the thing the John Carpenter movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I thought this was better than Thing from Another World. And then looking right above that, there's the Wolfman, which, you know, we talked about being kind of a Nazism allegory. But, like, it's a weak Nazism allegory, frankly, because, like, it's mostly just a werewolf movie. And it's, you know, fun, but it's it's kind of a cheesy werewolf movie. <laughs> right above that is Fermin Maria, which is a much better Nazi allegory. And that's where I was like, okay, does the fact that that allegory, you know what it is and what it's saying, and it was saying it in a time and place where it was dangerous to be saying it, make it better than Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is, yes, also very much tied to its time and place, but in a much more playing to both sides kind of way. So I I wasn't sure, but right above Fairman Maria is Murders in the Zoo, which is a movie that was really shocking and violent for its time, but also has some really shitty comic relief. And listen, as much as Siegel and Mainwaring and Wenger thought that, like, taking the comic relief out of this movie took out its humanity, I'm glad it's not there. <laughs> because part of the thing that works about this movie is how well it's able to maintain its tension and ramp it up properly to the point where him screaming in the highway at the end feels right. So I made my ceiling Dracula. I don't think this is a better horror movie than Dracula. It's a better thriller or sci-fi movie than Dracula, but Dracula's not a sci-fi or thriller movie, and we ain't ranking those genres. So my range was 20 to 22. That's very narrow. Okay. Which is, is, yeah, exactly. Like, I thought it was definitely better than Thing from Another World. Definitely not as good as Dracula. That's way above yours. The difference between my floor and your ceiling is 23 to 42. Uh, the midpoint of that is like roughly around the area of Cat in the Canary and Phantom of the Opera. Um, so if we look kind of in there, is there anything really striking out to you in that midpoint range? My eyes were drawn to the seventh victim. Okay. Um, and the feeling of paranoia, everyone's after you, right. that sort of thing. Um, I think in The Seventh Victim, it's definitely very well done. But at the end of the day, if you just leave that town, that cult's not going to follow you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you just have to not kill yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I think Seventh Victim is good, but it definitely has flaws and weaknesses. And I think if you're wanting to look at a movie about paranoia, this is a better movie about it. Yeah. This is almost like the quintessential movie about it, right? At least up to 1956. For sure. So, okay, so then we're thinking above Seventh Victim? I think so. It's hard, I know, to like judge this against like Vampire or Cat in the Canary because those are movies that are doing such different things. So maybe the question to ask is how good are they at doing the thing they're trying to do? So Cat in the Canary is trying to be like a fun haunted house ride of a movie. And I think it's very, very good at that. 
Invasion of the Body Snatchers is, you know, trying to be a movie about paranoia in small-town America. It's good at that, but we've identified that the flaw is that it doesn't want to specify what it's talking about. Vampire, the problem is, what is Vampire trying to do? Because if Vampire is trying to be like a dreamlike nightmare movie that relies on like your deep irrational fears to create like a chilling atmosphere, I think Vampire does a great job. If Vampire is supposed to be a popular mainstream vampire movie that um, should get Carl Dreyer's, you know, career back on track financially, it does not work for that. <laughs> What's kind of interesting here is Vampire, we praise its ambiguities, mm-hmm. whereas Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it's definitely a fault. Yeah, I think because Vampire is using its ambiguities to say, you know, fill in these blanks with your phobias, Right. And Invasion of the Body Snatchers is is kind of doing the same thing, but it's doing it so that it can avoid being seen taking a stance, right? Like, even if it was meant to be anti-McCarthy, they clearly held back on it enough because they knew that, like, you know, anti-McCarthy means pro-communist, and pro-communist is not a popular... uh, thing to be seen as being right so there's some like hesitancy there and then it's like well we don't it's like we don't want to be seen as pro-McCarthy but we also don't want to be seen as pro-communist therefore the movie is both and that's that's kind of wishy-washy whereas I don't think the ambiguities in Vampire are coming out of wishy-washiness yeah and that's definitely why I even in Gore Range I would not put it above Fairman Maria because Mm. even though like as we say, if that movie had been made, like, three months later, everyone would have been shot. Like, right. it was still made in the three months prior. That would have been a very dangerous time to be making that movie. Yeah. So, uh... uh so do we want to go above Seventh Victim, below Vampire? Let me propose to you. Below the thing from another world, above the Return of the Vampire. I think we can agree, cool above the Return of the Vampire, just in terms of, like... The movie itself, but the reason I'm thinking below the thing from another world, I see what you're saying about the paranoia and everything, but I just think of like some of the powerful visuals and the feeling of just being stuck and isolated hmm. in this little bunker versus and like the threat still of like watch to the sky or watch the skies or whatever. Um, you're you're trapped in both, but in one of them you can run to Los Angeles still. Yeah, whereas the other one you have to survive. Yeah. Alright, I'm willing to make that compromise, because yeah, I think, like, the reason Return of the Vampire is good is that it's fun. And that's it. Like, it's a fun movie, and that's, that's why, <laughs> like, it's so fun that it's at number 24, but, like, that's it. So I'm, I'm willing to go there if you are. Okay, cool. Cool. So entering the list at the new number 24 is Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956, directed by Don Siegel. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, 
please drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. Alternatively, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or chat with us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and you can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed and listen to us on whatever podcasting app you prefer. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review. Uh, Those kinds of things help fuel the internet's algorithm-based measure of how valuable people are. Uh, If you don't want to engage with that, uh, you can just tell someone online about the show, share your favorite episodes to social media... Um, or if you've got the financial means at this time, you can do like we said at the top of the show and head over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Another big shout out and thank you to Jesse Walker-McGraw and Kevin Walker for becoming our most recent patrons of the night. Um, we are pushing to get to our first goal of $150 a month by our 150th week on Patreon, which is only two weeks away. So help us reach that goal. Patreon.com slash Podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are watching a movie called Man Beast. I know nothing <laughs> else about it. I got nothing else to tell you. I, I want listeners to imagine Ben's face just... Stone-faced Buster Keaton watching Man Beast. Like, how can you say that title without a big smile coming onto your face imagining a big Man Beast? I got nothing. I don't know anything about this movie. It's Man Beast. We'll see next week, Creatures (laughs) of the Night. I look forward to meeting Man Beast. Bye. Bye. Bye.